Welcome to Within the Musician Podcast. This show is a place of discovery for all performers, recording artists, students, educators, and future educators. My name is Monica Williams. I'm a flutist, teaching artist, recording artist, performer, and lifelong learner. Today, I have a very special guest, and we're going to talk about how to continue playing music even if you're in pain. My guest is Lee Pearson, and she has been helping musicians find relief from pain and effective ways of learning and moving forward since 1998. She's one of the country's leading body mapping specialists, and she's worked with professionals and amateurs as well as students and teachers. In addition to having a doctorate in music, Lee is also a certified health coach. She's the author of Body Mapping for Flutist, What Every Flute Teacher Needs to Know About the Body, and numerous articles in professional magazines. Those publications in her years of successful pain relief outcomes with musicians have gained her international acclaim. She is a sought-after trainer and speaker and has presented and taught workshops in more than 40 universities, military bases, conferences, and conventions worldwide. Today, we're going to talk about what is body mapping and how to problem solve when a student or yourself is expressing pain. How to teach this more effectively when we're all online these days. If you're listening to this later, we're like in month 11 of the pandemic. And how about her new program, Music Minus Pain, which I love the title and I think we're going to just call this episode Music Minus Pain. So welcome, Lee. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Monica. I'm really excited to be here to talk with you and share some information that might be really helpful to musicians. Yes. And since we can do this podcast anywhere in the world, tell us where you're from. Where are you from in in the world? I actually am living in my home state, which is Massachusetts. In my hometown, which is Newbury, I was gone for over 35 years and I came back. So I'm very near uh, the northeast corner of Massachusetts, a little bit north of Boston. And it's very cold here. It's three degrees this morning and lots of snow coming. Snow coming. Yeah, I'm actually in Chicago just for this time period of my parents and it's already here. I think it's making your way there. Yeah. (laughs) So as we speak. Yes. Um, So I know you're a trained flutist and I follow you on um, Facebook. And just first of all, let's just start off with that. Where can people find you on Facebook? If you're just tuning into this podcast and you don't have time, maybe jot this down. It's going to be in the episode notes, but you give out so much great free resources. Where can people find you if they want to know more beyond this podcast? Well, if you're on Facebook, you just look for my name, Lee Pearson, L-E-A-P-E-A-R-S-O-N. And I think there's only two of us in the world, but I'm in Massachusetts, so that's Uh easy to find. And I have lots of, uh, as you mentioned, free videos up there. Um, You can also go to my website, which is musicminuspain.com. Facebook is the only social media that I use. I just, my brain isn't quite ready to deal with Instagram (laughs) or TikTok. Maybe someday TikTok. I don't know. But um, (coughs) It's definitely entertaining. Okay, great. I'll put those in the episode notes so that people can find those more easily. But I wanted to mention that right off the bat because so many of our guests do put out so much great content. And I like social media for some of these topics because it's short doses of great information rather than this podcast, which will probably be end up being like 40 minutes. If you just want to dive into little tidbits, it's a great way to get to know a certain topic. And so, and you, you put out so much great content. Well, mm-hmm. let me also give you my email address because I'm, people are welcome to email me. It's just my name, Lee Pearson at Mac, M-A-C dot com. That's the old Apple, Lee Pearson great. at Mac dot com. We'll put that, all that in the episode notes. So great. Thank you. Grab that there. So um, as I mentioned, you're a trained flutist yourself. How did you get into health coaching and um, studying the relationship between body and instrument. Was that your intention when you went into schooling or is this something that developed through your life? Oh God, I had no idea when I, when I went to college, one thing I did not want to be was a musician. Uh, Hmm. I was very clear about that, but then it turned out that I, I loved playing and I was playing eight hours a day and playing in chamber music groups and orchestras and other ensembles and playing for composers and doing my own study because I was, you know, taking lessons all through college. And what happened was 
when I was 18, my left arm started to go numb, my left hand Mm -hmm. on the, the third, fourth and fifth fingers. And it also hurt. And I was like, what am I supposed to do about this? So I asked my teacher, my teacher said, I don't know. I asked another teacher and they said, I don't know. So, you know, it's getting worse. I went to a musician's clinic at Mass General Hospital and they watched me play and they said, you look fine. It doesn't look like you're doing anything wrong. Well, they were wrong. I know that now, but that was the beginning of a 30 year journey of pain. And I played in pain, except for a couple of times where I stopped because it was too much. I played in pain for 30 years until I began to figure out what to do about it. And that was just excruciating because what, what I found out and what a lot of my fellow musicians who play in pain find out is it's the pain is not as bad. The physical pain is less painful than the emotional pain of not being able to do what you're heart desires. What you really want to do, you spent your entire life training for. And I used to just look at my flute case and cry. I couldn't even take my flute out of the flute case because it hurt so much to, to play. Mm. It was just like, it's, it's a, it's a whole being pain. It's like, well, if I'm not a musician, who am I? What it's a, it's a whole Mm. identity crisis for people. Yeah. Yeah. You, you bring up a good point. We were talking, I had a um, mental health professional and we were talking about how, musicians so deeply identify as that part of their persona. So if part of that, it's like losing a limb, you know, you can, you can equate it to someone that doesn't understand. It's like losing a limb if you um, are a musician. So, um, so it sounds like you just don't, you figured this out yourself. That was the beginning of it. You needed to figure out something for yourself. Well, and th- that wouldn't give credit to my amazing teachers. I will. Say- well, it's the study of it. Yeah, so yeah. yes, I will say, however, that, the process I had to go through of figuring out who I was if I wasn't a musician and identifying my talents and my skills that I had learned by becoming a musician turned out to be incredibly useful as I moved forward in my life. And I realized, oh, I have all, I don't just play music. I have all these other skills that I've learned by studying music. So I, what happened was I, you know, by the time I was 45, I was just like, enough of this. I've got to either basically sit or get off the pot, learn how to do it or give it up. So Mm -hmm. I decided at that point uh, to go back to grad school to get my doctorate. I never thought I would get a doctorate. I always thought, oh, that's for people who are big time academics, you know, but I had the opportunity to do that, moved my whole family to Columbus, Ohio. And one of the reasons I wanted to go to Ohio State was that there was this amazing Alexander teacher in Columbus who I'd already done some workshops with. I knew that this was somebody who could help me, Barbara Conable. And so when I went to Ohio State, when I was working on my doctorate, I went to her every week for lessons for three years. I used my school loans to pay for that. Hmm. She saved my life, really, because I was a basket case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was totally a mess. I, I could hardly play at all. Hmm. Wow. And so, so that's, yeah, that was, sounds like a very beneficial thing. So you got your doctorate in music in flute. and flute. in flute. Yeah. Yeah. And flute performance. And while you were managing or figuring out how to manage pain, that's like yes. quite a leap of faith. Like you're going to like foresight that you're going to figure out how to, to do this, even though you had, it sounds like had your moments of. While of, raising two small children. Wow. My husband has gone completely gone one year on a fellowship while working and teaching. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Crazy, crazy five years. Mm-hmm. So tell us, uh, you know, how did you, uh, three years of teaching, but what was it that enabled you to go from being in pain or playing in pain and being kind of emotionally debilitated to being free of pain? And I'm assuming this is what you do in helping other people right now. So how, tell us about your journey first. How did you conquer that with your teacher? Yeah. Um, and then go ahead. Yeah. What's and then and then how do you present that to other people? So, you know, you, you did this for yourself. And that I think that's a lot of um, the idea of 
being really creative and proactive as an artist. It's not just about the creating music. I mean, you mentioned this earlier. There's so much more about training as a musician that we get than just playing music. So oh, yeah. you obviously took the skills and not only had to work for yourself, but built a career and a platform to help other people yeah, yeah. do this. How did it work for you and how are you doing? How are you helping others? And honestly, I didn't know that's where I was going, but I just said, I have to do this. This is survival. This is down mm-hmm. to a level of survival. But I, I need to say something about my teacher because what she did was truly extraordinary. Barbara Connable was an Alexander Technique teacher. She's still alive, but she's basically mm-hmm. retired. And she had saved the careers of hundreds and hundreds of musicians. The, um, you know, when the Broadway shows would come through with the musicians from New York, all the musicians would go and have a lesson with her because playing pit work is really hard work. And I, I had watched her in workshops and I was just like, this woman is magic. How does she know what people are doing and how does she know what to tell them and what to do so they can play better? And so I just, I just knew that she had information, um, and I needed the support. So the, the support that the personal support that I got from her every week through this trauma of being in school and working and raising two small children, you know, which a lot of women have been through, um, was just, you know, there's no price you could put on that. But what happened was as I was studying with her, and there were a, a few of us that were studying at that time, uh, Amy Lykar was a colleague of mine at the time, and she's gone on to do the same kind of work. Barbara realized that musicians had no idea how to use their bodies. <laughs> they just had never, it's not part of our training. You know, we mm-hmm. spent a lot of time talking about embouchure or bow arm or, you know, all kinds of things and breathing, but mm-hmm. not the whole body, not understanding how the body works. So she decided to package that information. I mean, she was really an entrepreneur, although she wasn't in it for the money. She created this course called What Every Musician Needs to Know About the Body and proceeded to train about 16 of us in Ohio to teach this course in a very particular way with very specific information about how your body works. So that was my beginning. And the more I did it, the better I got and the better I got at teaching. And it just kind of snowballed from there till I finally got to the point in about, I got my doctorate in 2000, then did a whole bunch of other work. But by 2005, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. This is all I'm going to do. And I, I didn't have, even though I taught college in the past and had an orchestra career in the past, I had no other job except this. So I had to figure out how am I going to make a living doing this thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. And, and you've written a book. Yeah. That was my, that was actually my doctoral thesis was my book. Yes. Yes. And I'm going to just turn my camera off since I got interrupted, but we're still recording. Um, so I, you know, you, you, everything you said, it sounds like, um, this book that you've written body mapping is based upon your journey that you, you undertook. Tell us what is body mapping? What is that? What is that word? I mean, and it's relationship about how to use the body. And I think you're totally right. The idea that musicians don't know how to use their body. I just think about like my training as a flutist, you learn how to like make sounds and, um, and, hold this instrument, but you don't learn a whole lot about how to hold it. And flute's a really awkward one. I mean, every instrument I'm sure has its challenges. Um, yeah. but, <laughs> but flute is a, is a really, is a really awkward one. What is body mapping and how does it help musicians of all levels? Well, that's, that's sort of the question of the, <laughs> of the century, but, um, it's actually quite simple, but it takes a few words to explain. So what I like to say is that it's it's kind of a mashup of neuroscience, economics, and artistry. If you could put all those together, it's like, oh. So there are many of us, not just musicians, but people who have to do something that requires a lot of complicated and subtle movement that requires a lot of discernment. So musicians, athletes, dancers, people who have to move mm-hmm. for a living. And that's the first question we ask in our course. What do musicians do for a living? They move. So what kind of movement do musicians have to do? Everything from the movement yeah. of the lips to the movement of breathing to the movement of the fingers and really the whole body. 
because mm-hmm. the instrument itself doesn't do anything. I mean, you can mm-hmm. you can take your flute and hold it out the car window, and the air blowing on the mouthpiece will make a sound. But right. <laughs> it's still all sound is created by movement. So it turns out that you know what we want in order to succeed is the most efficient and free way to do to move to do that movement because that in a large way determines our success there's the other whole you know mental emotional aspect of it but if you can't move freely you can't succeed like i used to spend hours practicing technique when i was doing my masters at stanford with francis blaisell and she would get me in that practice room practicing taffanel gobert for hours and i never could get faster because i was mm. so friggin tense Mm-hmm. So lots of people will approach this from the ergonomic point of view, like how should I sit? How should I stand? Where you know where should I put my arms? But it turns out even more important than that is that the quality of your movement, the way you're moving, the efficiency and the ease of your movement is governed by one main thing, and that thing is the way you think about how your body works. Mm-hmm. And as we know, thoughts are in the brain. Mm-hmm. So this has a lot to do with the aspect of neuroscience that has developed around brain maps. Mm-hmm. It's not like there's one place in your brain where you think about the arm. It doesn't work that way. It's much, much more complex than that if you get into the neuroscience. But, mm-hmm. you know, have you heard about the London taxi drivers who have this huge map of London in their brains? No. Well, it turns out that London taxi drivers have a huge area of their brain that stores all the information about London streets and where they are and what direction they go. And, you know, so they've got these maps. Well, it Mm -hmm. turns out we have maps in our brain of how our bodies put together Hmm. and those maps. So that's, those are called body maps and Hmm. they govern how we move. Yeah. Yes. That's it. Yeah. And there's so much we don't know about the brain, right? Oh. There's so much we do. Like, I think it's like one I, article I read is like 90% or something. We don't know what the, the body there's does. And of course, coming out every day. Right. So I like that idea that that, that description or that analogy that that it's um, stored memory. And I'm imagining go back going back to the thought process of of this whole thing that the tension can also be um, manifested through just anxiety about your instrument. And I find at least myself when I'm teaching a lot of students, some of them are very tight and I, and I almost feel it's emotional based rather than physical. Oh yeah. The connection of insecurity of your instrument. Again, every instrument is different. I don't want to just talk about flute, but every instrument is different, but you know, just when you're, thinking about something, I use the analogy or, or the thought of, of an SAT, you know, when you go into SATs, everyone has their head down to the paper as if the answers will come quicker to you. It's just that manifestation of, of tension. And I, I imagine that, that that's our own psyche of wanting to do well and understand and get all the multiple things that we need to do as a musician, the bowing, the articulation, the notes, the rhythms, all of that stuff as you're learning it. Um, can kind of make it feel as if you're concentrating or in a state of overwhelm that puts that tension and almost like um, a statue. I tell my students that, you know, you, you have to have some freedom. Um, you're just, you're so, so in the the thoughts of the music that you're not allowing yourself to just have those freedom of the, the thoughts that create that freedom or sense of flow. Is that part of it as well? Yeah, totally. I mean, I, this is actually an area of my work that I've developed in the last few years because I started out just figuring, okay, how do we use our bodies? But then I started to realize how much our thoughts and emotions and experiences affect the way we use our body. So, mm-hmm. for example, I've worked with a lot of a, – a lot of – let me back up a step. There's a mm-hmm. specialist in PTSD and in trauma – um, named Peter Levine, and he gave a talk several years ago at the Performing Arts Medicine Conference. And he said that a lot, many, many students coming out of conservatory have PTSD. Hmm. Now, that blew my mind at the, at the time. I was like, what? How could that be? But then we started mm-hmm. thinking about it, and the, the level of self-judgment, the level of competition, the level of 
you know, feeling inadequate that I'm never going to be good enough gets into your body and it lives there. Now, mm. I've worked with a lot of students, believe it or not, who had trauma from experiences with their band directors who were, mm. you know, whether in, I'm sure it was unintentional on the part of the band directors, right. but they might be very demanding or very critical. And there's a vulnerable student who's there and feels attacked, you know, and so they, mm -hmm. they, they're young, right? High school mm -hmm. students are young and extremely vulnerable. Or they've had a private instrument teacher who was highly critical and, and judgmental. Or, you know, they, ha they might have had trauma when they were a child. Lots of us have. We have ways that we've learned to deal with it. And what's really interesting right now is that the pandemic, what I'm seeing is that the pandemic has triggered all these old wounds. Mm. Again, because we're all in survival mode. We really are. Yeah. Anyway, that's another whole topic. I could go off on that for a lot, but it's what I do in my retreats. I work with people to help figure out, well, what, what is that tension about? Where's it coming from? Where, where did you first notice it? You know, what, why do you think it's there? What are you trying to accomplish by working that hard? You know, what are you actually mm -hmm. trying to do? Well, I'm trying to play high notes or I'm trying to play faster. Well, is the tension actually helping you do that? Well, no, of course not. It's getting in the way. Well, then we start to go into the process that we do in body mapping, which is what do you have to do with your body to create the sound that you want? What kind of movement do you need? And where are you working too hard? And where can you let go of that work and or, and, or distribute the work through your whole body? Sorry, I'm I'm used to doing this with visual aids. I <laughs> I don't know how to talk yes, about no. it on the radio. I've got a skeleton in my background, and I've you know I've got lots of toys, but I can't. Use yes, you have to use here. imagination. Yes, um, so lots of thoughts on on that. It's that's so fascinating. I love the idea of the concept of body mapping and just like keeping that that um, those those notions of where those that action is stored because we don't think we think of muscles as like an action versus like a thought. So I like that idea of connecting the thought process to that actual yep. action. Um, so you mentioned, and as I was reading some of your articles about how you, you do team up with health professionals, which I'm sure is part of it because what you're talking about is, is definitely pertinent. But if someone is literally having joint damage, if they have arthritis or they have a physical condition, how do you work with someone that is, is, actually having a physical condition like arthritis and can that can can someone play with less pain that actually has arthritis that's a great question and um this these are questions that the performance healthcare committee on the national flute association which i was chair of for five years is looking at all the times all the time there are there are kind of two parts to that question um one is what's the cause of the pain Mm -hmm. playing an instrument is not generally a cause of arthritis unless you're doing it in a bad way. So right. the first thing, first thing we have to figure out is, is your pain caused by how you are playing your instrument or how you're using your body? Um, mm -hmm. It could be that there is misuse. You're using your body badly and inefficiently and effectively and in a way that's causing pain, which is different from overuse. Okay, so overuse was thought for a long time to be the cause of injury among musicians, but it's it's how you're using your body. There are musicians who play, you know, into their 90s incredibly well. And some of us would like to do that. I think my mother stopped playing her violin when she was like 88. <laughs> and she was so hunched over, she couldn't hold the violin up anymore. But so part of the first thing is, you know, what's the cause? And the second is... If there is not, if, it, if, it's, if it's a purely medical, structural cause, not related to how you play, can, are there things that you can learn to be able to move your body easier? And those are people that I work with, but I don't consider myself, and that might, that's really my big area of expertise. My real area of expertise is in how do we move? Now, you know, if somebody has arthritis in their hands, we can help them. We look at the big picture. We can help them figure out how to adapt their instrument 
to their hands. You know, I have some, I don't go into this very much, but there's some things I know in my training as a health coach that you can use for supplements or to reduce the pain in arthritis that don't involve, you know, heavy medicines. But um, that's not as relevant to what we're talking about here, I think. Mm -hmm. Right, right. But the but the the thing is the thing is that there's a lot of solutions. There's solutions to this, um, or ways to decrease. Yeah. Well, what you want to do, what you need to do, is really look at the whole person and the whole body from a holistic point of view. If you, if you're having arthritis, for example, you you have to look at what are your lifestyle habits, and any good healthcare professional will tell you that. The problem is that we tend to, in the medical model, isolate problems and put them in one place. You know, it's just my hands. Well, there might be something else going on, you know, and so we have to do a lot of questioning and a good diagnostician will question you from a whole body, whole being perspective. It's the same thing with pain coming from playing your instrument. When somebody comes to me with hand pain, the last thing I'm looking at is their hands. Uh, I'm observing what do they do before they even bring up the instrument? How are they standing? How are they breathing? How are they moving their arms? What's their relationship between their head and their spine? What are they doing with their whole body? Because any of those things can affect their ability to use their hands freely. That's right. Everything is connected. And yeah. like your skeleton that you have in the background, yeah. everything is connected. So that that's a good point is finding that pathway that um, the cause, the source of the pain is not always the cause of it. That's an interesting way to look at it. Well, we, and I, I just want to insert one other thing here. I'm sorry. We in the music and I come primarily from the music studio teaching angle, less from the classroom teaching because I'm not a band director. I've never been a band director. I've subbed for band directors, but uh, it's not a career that I thought that I could even begin to do well. But in, in t you know, studio teaching, we work in a similar way sometimes to the medical model. We're looking at one point. If there's a problem with the embouchure, we're studying the embouchure. We're not looking at how people are standing or the relationship between their feet on the ground. And in my view, that's had a huge impact on the percent of injury among musicians. Do you know what that is, the percent of injury among professional musicians? I do not. I'm sure you're going to Take a guess. Me. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Percent of injury. I'm going to guess 25%. Okay. Good guess. It's actually 75 to 85% of professional musicians wow. who will have pain or injury during their careers. Interesting. Okay. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Well, uh-huh. Isn't that pathetic and sad that it makes sense? Mm -hmm. It should yeah, make yes. sense. <laughs> but here's the uh -huh. thing. That figure has been the same for more than 20 years, even with all the knowledge and information we have mm -hmm. and all the surveys. We, the survey, They keep doing the same surveys over and over, and it keeps staying the same. So clearly mm -hmm. there's something that we're not doing. And I personally – think it has a lot to do with our pedagogy, the way that we teach. Mm -hmm. We're using this old master apprentice model where you go into your lesson, the teacher tells you everything you're doing wrong. Some They tell you what to fix. Sometimes they tell you how to fix it. And you're mm -hmm. supposed to go home and fix it. And mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. just accept what they tell you because they're the master and you're the student. It's not generally in the tradition we have a dialogue. You know, I'm curious, is it different Western versus Eastern? Is the is the percentage of injury late, um, rates different between Eastern and Western? I remember um, hearing this story of how they start um, the Ditsi in China, and they would start with the kids laying on the ground and learning to breathe, and then sitting up and learning to breathe, and then giving them the instrument and learning to breathe. And we're kind of like the dif difference here. Like you throw the instrument in and like, let's learn to make a sound, let's, and this is how you breathe, this is how you hold it, and like, you know, we're, we're, and now let's we're, start reading music. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Can't even hold the instrument yeah. yet, yet, let alone play this this song. Is it different between Western and Eastern or well, is, is the rates about Actually, I don't have enough information to answer that question. What I will say is that any culture where you learn where perfection is highly valued, mm -hmm. people are going to have a lot of stress and a lot of body tension. 
Yeah. And there are cultures like that all over the world. But, you know, I could only say generalizations from the few people that I've met. And I don't think that's fair to do. So Mm -hmm. that, you know, that's an interesting thing to research, I think. Mm -hmm. There are some cultural differences in the way we teach and the way we learn. um, But that's not my area of expertise. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like what you're talking about is perfectionism, which is one thing that we've talked a lot about in other episodes and in, in the shows is that, you know, that idea of needing to be perfect um, or the the desire to be perfect, and especially in classical musician more than other genres, um, can actually maybe be a source of that pain, you know, that perfectionism, if you're so tense on trying to make this piece perfect. Oh, totally. Um, totally. And yeah. the thing is, and this is kind of sad is that we are taught to judge ourselves from day one, to look at ourselves in a negative light. And as soon as we start studying an instrument, we are told everything that we're doing wrong. Mm-hmm. And so we, we embody that. We become, oh, I'm doing this wrong. I better fix that. Very few teachers in our tradition will tell us what we're doing well. And this is a piece that Barbara mm-hmm. Carnival really was really – insistent on in our training that if somebody does something well and they use their body well and they're expressive, celebrate it. You know, get that yes. joy in your body. Know what you did so you can do it again. Not just, oh, I did it once. Now I'm going to go on to the next thing that I'm doing wrong. Right. That's so important. And I think you hit the nail on the head. And that's the one thing that I try to bring to my students is that you got to you can't just look at the one thing that goes wrong. And it's it's so frustrating when a performance will come and a student comes back to me and says, yeah, I did this and this and this wrong. And I'm like, but all these other things you did right. And you're just ignoring that. You know, you focus on that two percent that maybe was not perfect. Well, what's perfect anyway? Train them. That should be part of our pedagogy to train Mm -hmm. our students to look at themselves without judgment to Mm. evaluate what they're doing, what works, what doesn't, how to do it better. And then what we're talking about here is brain training, which is really what body mapping it is. It's training your brain to do what you need to do. So, you know, if you, when I'm working with somebody, let's say I have a a student who, um, an adult who's coming to me and they're having a lot of shoulder and neck pain. Mm-hmm. And all they can talk about is, you know, all the things that are wrong and how bad they are. And you start inquiring into this and it turns out they've been that way since they were 10, you know, so they're already, mm-hmm. they're primed for this kind of <laughs> judgmentalism, right? So what I mm-hmm. talk to them about is when you want to change your brain, I, actually it's related to what I learned in my training as a health coach. I don't, I don't work as an official health coach now, but it brought a lot of information in my training. It's like mm-hmm. if you're if you have a diet that's not good for you and you just say, okay, I'm not going to eat all these foods anymore. I'm going to eat these other foods. It's not going to work very well. But if you stop trying to give up foods, but instead up your quotient of good foods, you will crowd out the bad foods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's much good way to yeah, it's much easier to do because you're doing something positive. So I talk about emotions that way in you know in the way we think about ourselves. Let's train the brain to respond to situations in a positive way. Let's celebrate. Let's get this this good feeling that'll get the endorphins flowing in our bodies and our brain so that the brain will go, "Oh yeah, that was great. You did that. I love that. I want to do that some more." And if you keep doing that, you will train your brain to respond that way and you will start being able to let go of all the perfectionism and the negative judgment that's been governing you and controlling you. Oh my gosh, that is so important. And I, 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 I think that's a whole other separate podcast, but it's true that, you know, we... 
as a classical musician, we do focus on the um, the mistakes. I, I'm thinking of this. There's the particular exam company that is um, doing all of their exams for achievements online and a students of a teacher. We were talking about this and all of the comments they got back were just things to improve things that, you know, the student probably knew they had to pr- perform four pieces over online and not one word of, you know, greatness to this very talented player that, you know, I think we need to get rid of that, that we need to celebrate, as you say, the excess excess. And you know, I haven't heard anyone um, equate the music reward to endorphins, but yeah, I could totally see that, that, yeah, if you, if you are constantly getting um, a negative, you know, source, that, that's kind of like, I think about students that have come to me that have had a prior teacher that has been really, really strict and they already have a negative association with the music training thing. And that shouldn't be at all. We have a very sacred relationship with our students and we can help with so many aspects outside of just the um, the music classroom. So it's really interesting to hear you talk about endorphins needed um, to to make this experience positive and celebrate when things are good. And that I can see as having a sense of relaxation in the body. You know, when you get those positive endorphins, that'll help with that body mapping, I'm assuming, Absolutely. connect in a more positive way rather than attention or, or stress way. You know what the biggest source of feel-good chemicals is? Oh, uh, what? Love. Love, okay. So all you have to do I was actually talking with my minister about this this morning because we were talking about forgiveness. All you have to do is take a minute and think about someone or something or someplace that you adore, something that you love. Mm. And then notice what happens to your body. Exactly Mm -hmm. what you said. You can hear my voice changing. You you start Mm -hmm. to feel more relaxed. You start to feel more grounded. You start to feel more expanded. Mm -hmm. This is the ideal state from which to perform. Mm -hmm. But how many of us go there? Yeah. How much, how many teachers have taught meditation before, you know, actually going in to perform? I mean, we talk about all the stuff that you have to do, the warm ups and stuff, but the mental preparation, you know, I think meditation should be a class. And, 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 and I would also say it's emotional preparation. Mm -hmm. No, love is, is a verb. It's action. It, it allows your whole being to expand. And mm-hmm. the opposite of that is fear and tension, which makes your whole body mm-hmm. contract. We're basically mm-hmm. walking around in startle reflexes 18 hours a day, especially mm-hmm. college students right now and high school students who are just crazy, gone crazy because they have to be at home. And they can't hang yeah. out with their friends and they're just, you know, they're a mess. Hard mm-hmm. until we spend so much time, you know, shoulders in, up, neck short, that whole starter reflex mm-hmm. that you would get if a bear jumped out at you. We're in right. mild versions of that. We're in survival mode. And the most powerful thing to counteract that is to be experiencing love. And then you don't have to think about it. You just let it go. And you say, this is what I'm feeling. And then your body works so much better. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That's that makes a lot of sense. The contraction for fear and expansion for love. And I'm and I'm assuming self-love, too. And that's part of the non-judgmental approach you were talking about is is being able to celebrate the fact that you're able to perform, that you're able to play an instrument, that's um, the gratitude piece that's that I think is so important yeah. as well. It kind of all interconnects to that. Uh-huh. And I have yeah. to say, you know, I'm. I'm 69 and I'm still working on the self-love thing. <laughs> well, we all are, right? We should all be working it's on it. It's a lifetime. We're programmed, yeah, right? We're programmed to, to be judgmental in those. Well, I, wanna, um, I just want to say one more thing about this. We can mm-hmm. let ourselves off the hook a little bit by knowing that seeing the negative is something that we are hardwired for. It's a survival instinct. Mm-hmm. Our evolutionary, our you know, anthropologists tell us this. If you don't know where the danger is, you're going to die. <laughs> so we, we're wired to notice danger, to notice negative things, and to respond to that and get ourselves safe. And that, that's the first thing that we do. However, we're also wired to be nurtured, 
and to love. So we just have to kind of go, all right, you know, it's not my fault that I see all these negative things. I don't have to judge myself for judging myself. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, when we go back to pain, I'm imagining that once you exhibit pain, there's actually more anxiety and more stress because now you're like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I mean, a lot, our hands are our livelihood, yep. right? And and, um, and so I'm imagining that that could exacerbate it because now, now you're freaked out, you know, and you're trying like, what do I do about this? And that's when people need a coach like you to kind of work through some of those things because your mind can get yeah. into a onto and a kind of a snowball. It's effect, really true. Make you work. know, you don't know what you don't mm-hmm. know. And you, you need someone to look at things from a bigger perspective, to have, have eyes and ears and, and, you know, sensitivity to notice what's going on. And what I notice, what I'm trained to notice, and this is what our training is in body mapping is to notice how people move. And we can tell by the way they move, what they don't understand about their bodies or what they, what misunderstandings they have. Mm-hmm. And we're talking a lot about classical musicians, but I'm, I'm assuming that you take kind of a, um, kind of an audit of the person's life. I'm thinking about like going into and working with this drummer who was having immense back pain and seeing that he was carrying so much on a daily basis into the studio, into this, into that. And, you know, I, I remember talking to him, I'm like, you need a system here. That's just like, you know, something that will take off all this weight because yeah. that's your problem. Um, it's not just playing the instrument and you're getting old, you know, with complaints would be like, I'm getting old. I can't do this forever. You know, just accept accepting that rather than, okay, there is a solution here. That's really obvious. Some people don't see the obvious things is, is that you are like physically, no one could do that. It's like 200 pounds of stuff you're carrying yeah. around on your back, you know, day right. after day. And, after day. and going to the gym, <laughs> going to the gym is not going to solve the problem. No. Yeah. And movement is important. I'm sure you agree with yeah. that, you know, having, having this physical Absolutely. health, but, um, yeah, you got to like, look at all the things. And, um, especially I think in the, in the rock and the singer songwriter that do a lot of touring and they're trying to wear all the hats of the entire, you know, production key and they're experiencing physical pain. Some of it is just that you're doing too much yeah. to your body, you know, and that you're a musician and we value this. Of course we need to like figure out a solution that you can con- continue playing and doing and touring and, and all these things with still, without pain, you know? So part of it I've been imagining is just like literally writing down everything you do on a weekly basis and, and taking stock of what could possibly be doing physical damage and solutions. There's always yeah. a solution to things. So well, I think that's there, a you know? great place to start. Um, the, the way we approach that in body mapping, the, the system that we use is, and this actually comes out of the Alexander technique, because Barbara, mm-hmm. what Barbara Carnival was an Alexander Technique teacher, is to look at how is your body designed to be upright? What holds you up? What keeps you upright? And if people are trying to use a lot of muscles to hold themselves up, then they're constantly working against themselves and creating more tension. So we have to get to the place where we understand, oh, I don't have to do anything to be upright. If it's effortless, if I just can learn how to come into balance, give my way to the ground, the earth is going to hold me up. This is, this is what athletes know. They may not consciously know it, but they couldn't do, you know, a runner couldn't do their, their work without getting support from the ground. So we always go there. That's the second thing that we teach in body mapping. The first thing we teach is awareness, awareness of the space around you, awareness of how you're moving. So you start to have some information to work with, but then we get to, Mm -hmm. all right, well, what is the process of being upright? We all learned it as a baby, right? We learned how to stand unless there was something really wrong. We learned how to stand and nobody taught us. We just did it. We had automatic reflexes, that once we developed a little bit of muscle activity, allowed us to stand and walk and run and then jump, right? Mm-hmm. It's natural mm-hmm. to the human bot, the human being. It's totally natural. It just gets drummed out of us by the things that we try to do. And maybe it may be sitting in school for 12 years. <laughs> yes. And more screens and all that stuff yes, these days. 
So I want to ask about online teaching. I know you're teaching online and I think you've been doing this for longer than the pandemic, right? You've been teaching yeah. online. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. So this is not new. To yeah. You. When I moved back to Massachusetts, um, I left, when I was 60, I left everything in Ohio, left everything behind, um, came back to Massachusetts and I said, all right, I don't want to, you know, start a whole new flute studio. I don't have the energy for that. I don't want to try mm-hmm. to be a performer in Boston of all places where there's thousands of incredible performers too old for that. I want to reach people who don't have access to body mapping classes. And at that point, the technology was just starting to be there. We, we first thing I used was um, Adobe. There was an Adobe platform where you could do video. We couldn't even do video teaching before then. Before like mm-hmm. five years yeah. ago. So I said, all right, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to learn how to teach online so I can reach people all over the world. And I started doing that about five years ago. Um, then Zoom came in, which changed the whole game. Um, and I was the only person in the world teaching body mapping online. Mm-hmm. Now wow. everybody's doing it because I have to, right? I have to be able to do <laughs> right. that. So in terms of what does body mapping have to offer online teaching? Um, Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time trying to articulate this because I think it's really important and it has to do with changing the way we teach in the studio, that old master apprentice model where the expert tells you everything and you try to do it. So what happens when we're teaching online is we don't hear or see as well, right? We, We, especially the sound quality can be limited and people spend hours and hours and hours trying to find the best speakers and the best microphone and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. When we teach body mapping, the the process of teaching is not about telling. It's about inquiry. You have to inquire into that student's experience because you can't assume that you know anything. You have to, even though I might think I know what their body map errors are, I don't tell them because they have to discover Mm -hmm. it themselves. It's more meaningful. So when I'm working with somebody on Zoom, what I'm doing is trying to get them to articulate what they are experiencing and asking questions. So they play something and say, well, what did you notice? Um, what did that feel like? Where, where, did you notice anything? What did you notice in your neck or in your breathing? Or um, how did your hands feel? I'm, I'm trying to get them to, first of all, notice what they're doing and what it feels like. Second of all, articulate it. And then jointly search for a solution that will help them. And I do that by trying to give them experience. So let's say they notice their neck and their shoulders are really tight and that comes into gripping in their hands. And this is common for all musicians, really. It doesn't matter the instrument. So they notice that and then we can say, all right, so why are you doing that? (laughs) What's the purpose of tensing up your shoulders? What are you trying to achieve? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I said, well, if you did know, what would you say? And I said, well, I'm trying to play louder or I'm trying to play softer or higher. I said, oh, okay. Well, so if you were going to play louder, what do you know that you would actually have to do with your instrument to create a loud sound? Because you wouldn't go to a beginner and say, okay, now in order to play loud, you're going to have to tense up your shoulders and grip your bow and really saw into it, right? Nobody would ever do that. So what do you actually know? And then you get into what they know about their own instrument technique. I don't have to know it, but I want to know what they know uh, because I work with all different instrumentalists and singers and I help them discover that technique. And then so they don't know how to do that. And then that, so then I'll say, all right, I want to, I want to give them an experience of freedom. So say, all right, let's do, let's do something really weird. Let's do 10 jumping jacks. I use this a lot. Mm-hmm. So we do, they play, then we do 10 jumping jacks, then they play again. And then I ask, is there anything different about the way you feel when you play after having moved in that way? Oh yeah. I feel so much easier. So much freer. Oh, isn't that interesting? Why do you think that is? What do you notice is freer? Do you, does it, where does it feel different? Well, my, my arms just seem to move a lot easier or my neck isn't so tight. Oh, why do you think that is? You know, since this goes on, but it's fantastic in online teaching because right. they're now owning what they're learning. They're owning the experience and you're becoming a facilitator 
to their experience. Mm -hmm. You don't have to hear everything. You don't have to be able to see everything. You are relying on them to communicate. If you know how to ask the right questions, you can rely on them to observe. You train them to observe their own performance and articulate what it is. And then you help them connect their thoughts and their emotions and their experiences with what they're doing and give them great opportunities to figure this out. I love it. It's like you're training teachers to be a partner, partner in crime rather than. Yeah. And training students to be their own teachers. Isn't that what we want? That's what everybody says. What's the ultimate result you want from teaching? I want my students to be able to teach themselves. Like parents, we want to make ourselves obsolete. But we don't (laughs) do that if we're always giving them the answer. True. And you're right. That is very much the old school way of doing things is you provide the answer and then that's yeah. that's the process. So I love that. that rethinking. Yeah, I just want to qualify for one second. There are a lot of wonderful teachers out there now who understand this. I don't want this to be mm-hmm. a blanket judgment on teachers. It's not about that. It's It's like, okay, this is what we've known about educational philosophy For a hundred years, we've known that people learn better when they experience something. We're just kind of behind (laughs) in the music world. Right. And I think that there, you're right. There are a lot of teachers and like me, you're constantly seeking new information to apply to it. So, um, you know, I I went to a very good school, um, but I didn't learn a whole lot of the pedagogy. I didn't learn a whole lot of the stuff. You can't, that kind of came after the fact. And so um, that's part of your, I think as a teacher, you should never be um, stagnant in your own learning and your own evolution, because you have to keep moving forward. And there's so much out there. Technology, as you say, who has changed, has opened up the window to even access that information. Podcasts, they were not a thing, you know, a couple of years ago that that was so easily accessible. So there's like a wealth of information um, on many platforms. So I want to ask you about, because I know that you are starting a new teachers group called Music Minus Pain. We'll title this episode this. Um, what is that about and how can teachers benefit in this kind of continued lifelong learnership? Um, how could one get started and what are you going to offer? Tell us about Oh, that. great. Thank you for, for that. Um, I would just want to clarify one, th- clarify one thing. Music Minus Pain is kind of the umbrella for all the work that I do. That's the name of my website. It's the name of my, my company, um, my company of one. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, but mm-hmm. the new program for teachers is called the Transformational Teacher. Got it. Um, and I started out about, well, actually right around March, about nine months ago with a small Facebook group that we were just calling the teacher circle. Cause I'd wanted for a long time to offer some support for teachers. You know, I feel like as private teachers, we're often so isolated. It's actually interestingly in the pandemic, excuse me, gotten a little bit less isolated because we're all connecting on Facebook. Mm-hmm. There are all these groups. That's true. But still, Mm -hmm. a lot of us are very isolated and we don't have, there are not a lot of opportunities for teachers to learn new things. There aren't a lot, there's tons of workshops on performance and masterclasses and all of that stuff, but there aren't that many workshops and classes on how to teach, especially once Mm -hmm. you're done with school. So I wanted this to be two things. First of all, a community of support for teachers Mm -hmm. and then a way to help teachers move out of that old model and into a transformational model where they are being able to do exactly that process that I just took you through. They're learning how to observe, how to notice what their students are doing. They're learning how to use this process of inquiry so that they can figure out what's going on and not tell a student, oh, the music should feel like a river without knowing whether that mm-hmm. student ever actually almost drowned in a river, in which case it's not going to feel like a river to them. <laughs> well, that's a really good point. Uh-huh. You let the student describe what it feels like. And then you keep, you know, as a teacher, you keep challenging them to go one step further, one, you know, to, to invite a little bit more curiosity and openness and excitement. But then the third part is that piece that we were talking about validation and celebration. So, we, the teachers in this group, the, the circle is now 
become the transformational teacher. We validate each other. We celebrate what we've done. We celebrate those little achievements. We, you know, report back on what's my teaching been like this week? Well, I had a problem with this student, but I had this amazing success with another student. Like last week, one of my teachers said, well, my high school kids are all going through exams. And I taught them this breathing thing that we had done. And they all said, oh, I was so much more relaxed going into my exams. So that, you know, it's one, That's one awesome. little thing, but um, other teachers have, have expanded their studios. They're feeling much more comfortable in knowing how to work with students at all levels. We have from, you know, beginning Suzuki teachers to college professors. Mm-hmm. And it's, so it's a fantastic way to get support and also learn a way of teaching using this method of inquiry. You don't have to be a body mapping expert. It's not about training people to become body mapping teachers. That's done by our professional organization, the Association for Body Mapping Education. And I'll just put that in there. A-B-M-E is the association that our, that's our educational group that trains people. But this is about how to teach and how to teach in a way that is brings the most success to the students and is most rewarding to you. Because for a lot of people, teaching online just doesn't feel very rewarding. They're exhausted, right? Just learning how to deal with screens is exhausting. Mm-hmm. I love your your group because it sounds like you're using the challenges of the online platform and actually making it part of a more rewarding experience. Like, I'll tell you, I'll talk for myself is that at first I was exhausted teaching online. And as I learned new ways, new technologies, new techniques, I got more invigorated because I got excited about it. I'm like, wow, I'm becoming a better teacher. I'm, you know, pushing the envelope. And I think that, you know, when you've been doing something for a while, it's not that I didn't care about my students. I certainly did. But you just get comfortable with a routine that works and you don't push yourself as much. And this pandemic, made me and I'm sure a lot of other teachers push ourselves to learn new things like your offering, which is, you know, um, different ways of transforming, you know, like your title, transforming, transforming your your teaching and then therefore your students thinking of other ways to um, bring benefit to music teaching outside the teaching studio because, you know, the exam part of it, the, the whole student is part of this. You can't teach a student a Mozart concerto if they're so stressed about what is going on that you you know if that's taking such precedence you might have to back yeah. it up you might have to find something that relates to them and be very very flexible if, in their, your, if their grandmother so just died from that. covid you know yeah really yeah Mozart goes out the window. Yeah and and that's part of being flexible and and that's I think I think that, you know, as I, as I, as I grow and as an artist and as a teacher, I realized the benefit and the value of flexibility. That was another thing that wasn't so much taught in yeah. the classical, <laughs> you know, conservatory that you should be flexibility, both in performing and in teaching is probably the biggest yep. skill and you in, could And in your movement. Have. And in your movement too, which is which is this. Well, I'm keeping an eye on our time, Lee, and I want to make sure that that we get what your links out one more time. Is there any final wrap ups you would like to um, give our audience before? Well, we um, yeah, just I, I just want to say one other thing about this way of teaching mm-hmm. is that it mm-hmm. doesn't require any technology, and it works extremely well whether you're teaching on the phone with no video or on your porch, Mm. or behind a plastic shower curtain, or plexiglass, or in person. It's a a process of teaching that is like accessible to anybody and everybody, and it's so rewarding. It's just, it transformed my life as a teacher and a lot of other people. So I would love to have people check it out if they're interested, like you. I think it's fantastic, Monica, what you're doing about just constantly challenging yourself to grow. And I think we as teachers want to do that. We just, you know, inertia is powerful. <laughs> yes. And I will say about the, you know, it was just, I had a guest on um, Suze Polinsky. We were talking about planning and the mindset of musicians from the business angle. I know that um, 
teachers can feel in a sense of overwhelm and the sense of community or the, the, the community you're offering is, is going to help with that. But I will say one thing about, you know, the sense of overwhelm. Sometimes if you just have a plan of action to help your student, if you're, I'm, I'm, I'm liking teaching online. I, I see the, the pros and cons of it, but if you're in that place where you're in an overwhelmed sense, seek out, uh, you know, additional resources and help because it, you can make your life better. And if you're having fun, more fun and a rewarding experience teaching online, then your students Absolutely. will as well. And it'll actually help Absolutely. your business because, yep. you know, that can be felt. That can felt even, even virtually. You can feel if someone is not um, enthused or they're not, it's not working for them, you know? Um, so it goes both ways. So the, it's an investment. And I think that as artists, we, we have to remind ourselves that we're worth it, you know, whatever self-care and whatever, um, business-wise as your music producer, this term that's coming up a lot, um, you can seek out additional ways of making yourself better and making your business better. And, that goes artistically, uh, functionally with your movement, and you know they all work together. I love it. I love it. I love it. Okay, so I am. You're going to put I'm, a link mm-hmm. to the information about the teacher group in for the transformational teacher in the in the information, and you've got my email, Lee Pearson at mac.com, and I'm on uh, Facebook, and people can go to my website, Music Minus Pain. Yes, all of that, and I will put all of that in in the. Um, bio links again if the, the minimum just follow on Facebook if you're, you're you know that's a great way to start getting more information so thank you so much for joining me uh, to our audience if you've liked this episode please like share subscribe and review if you're listening to us on Apple that'll help us reach a wider audience and get us out to more musicians and always greatly appreciated um, and until next week All right, thank you so much Monica for inviting me absolutely